This morning we're going to continue our series, kind of looking at the gospel through the lens of a Charlie Brown Christmas. And this morning, I really don't have any idea if Charles Schultz had in mind what I am going to propose this morning. Uh, I don't know if Charles Schultz in his mind made the connection that, that I feel like uh, we're going to make this morning when he wrote the story. Maybe he did, um, but, but we can't know for sure. Um, but again, trying to connect a biblical truth to a familiar story and uh, so that we can see what kind of new insights the Lord might show us. And so um, at this point in the story of Charlie Brown, uh, last time we saw uh, Charlie going to Lucy in her psychiatric booth uh, asking for help because she um, wanted to try to help him figure out why he was so depressed. And in a scene that you didn't see, what Lucy tells Charlie Brown is, Charlie Brown, you need involvement. And so there's a Christmas play that the gang is putting on, and they need a director. And so Lucy recruits Charlie Brown to be the director of their Christmas play. And so they go to the auditorium, and they begin working, and they hand out their parts. And, um, and Charlie Brown gives them instructions about what he wants them to do, but everything doesn't uh, really go as well as it's supposed to. There's always a a plot hole in a Charlie Brown Christmas that nobody ever really talks about. The fact that the cartoon ends before we get to see if the Christmas play actually happened or not. Have you ever thought about that? I, I wish almost there was a part two, like somebody would have made a Charlie Brown part two so we could go and I, I want to see the Christmas play, don't you? I want to see what they actually did and what it looked like. Um, but Charlie Brown is the director and he's having trouble and so he, um, he comes up with an idea. So let's watch this uh, other very familiar scene together. All right, let's take it from the top again. Places, action. Charlie Brown, isn't it a great play? That doesn't. Now look, if we're ever to get this play off the ground, we've got to have some cooperation. What's the matter, Charlie Brown? Don't you think it's great? It's all wrong. Look, Charlie, let's face it. We all know that Christmas is a big commercial racket. It's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know. Well, this is one play that's not going to be commercial. Look, Charlie Brown, what do you want? The proper mood. We need a Christmas tree. Hey. Perhaps a tree, a great, big, shiny aluminum Christmas tree. That's it, Charlie Brown. You get the tree. I'll handle this crowd. Okay. I'll take Linus with me. The rest of you practice your lines. Get the biggest aluminum tree you can find, Charlie Brown. Maybe paint it pink. Yeah, do something right for a change, Charlie Brown. I don't know, Linus. I just don't know. Well, I guess we better concentrate on finding a nice Christmas tree. I suggest we try those searchlights, Charlie Brown. This really brings Christmas close to a person. Fantastic. 
still make wooden Christmas trees? This little green one here seems to need a home. I don't know, Charlie Brown. Remember what Lucy said? This doesn't seem to fit the modern spirit. I don't care. We'll decorate it, and it'll be just right for our play. Besides, I think it needs me. We're back. Boy, are you stupid, Charlie Brown. What kind of a tree is that? You are supposed to get a good tree. Can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree? I told you he'd goof it up. He's not the kind you can depend on to do anything right. You're hopeless, Charlie Brown, completely hopeless. Rats! You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a tree! They always so mean. You know it? It's awful how mean they are to him. So, I don't think there's a symbol of a Charlie Brown Christmas that's more recognizable or, or more loved than, than Charlie Brown's tree. And, of course, I'm a fan. I have my own. I keep it on my desk in my office all Christmas long. And I would argue that the tree is one of the most important characters in the story. Um, see, the gang has expectations of what they want their tree to be. They send Charlie Brown out to find the perfect Christmas tree for their play. And when they send him out, they have expectations of what they think he's going to bring back. But when he goes out, he finds this little tree in the midst of all of the great big shiny aluminum Christmas trees, which that was before my time. I never knew what a shiny aluminum Christmas tree was, but evidently in the 60s that was a thing. And people, some of y'all remember aluminum Christmas trees. I, that, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, it sounds like I'm glad that, that died and went away. Um, but uh, that was a thing. And so they had expectations for what they wanted him to bring back. But he somehow knew that this tree was special. And he brings it back to them and he's happy and there's a smile on his face. And he's, he's so excited. And then um, he gets beat up by the rest of the gang for being so stupid. Can't you even tell a good tree from a poor tree is what Lucy says. Just like the gang had expectations, during the time of the coming of Jesus, the time and the place where Jesus came, the people had expectations. They had expectations for what they thought the Messiah should be. Their ultimate king who was coming and what he would look like and who he would be. And I think before we look in these verses in Isaiah 53, I want to take you back to 1 Samuel 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I believe this is the beginning of where we start to see the nation of Israel create this picture of the kind of king that they wanted to rule over them. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, 
It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel was the prophet. They said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. And when they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people in everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me. In worshiping other gods. See, this was a time, from the time God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt, he, he ruled over them. They operated under what we call a theocracy. God was their king. And all the other pagan nations around them had, had human rulers, but, but Israel followed the leadership of God. God was their king. And he spoke through the prophets. The prophets were the messengers of the king. When God had a word for his people, he sent it through the prophets. And then the prophet, God called them to to call up and institute judges to to administrate and rule over the people. And so it's during this time that Samuel had appointed his sons as judges. And Samuel's sons were not good judges. They were not righteous. They did not follow God. They were corrupt and they were evil. And so the elders of Israel come to Samuel and say, we want a ruler. We want a king. And what kind of king did they want? If we read in the text, it says, give us a king the same as all the other nations have. They said, we want what everybody else has. Parents, it's Christmas time. And do you get a little frustrated When your kids come to you and they ask for something and the only reason they can give you as to why they want it is because everybody else has it. Doesn't that frustrate you sometimes? But you can remember doing that too. Let's be fair to our kids. I can remember a time when I did that. The only reason I wanted something was because everybody else had it. And then if we flip it, Flip the perspective a little bit. Can you also remember being that kid or that adolescent who wanted something so bad because everybody else had it? Do you remember the disappointment once you got that thing that you wanted so bad that everybody else had? Getting it and realizing it it really wasn't that great. And you were disappointed in it. The people said, we want a king like all the other nations have. We want a king we can see, a king that will sit and rule over us, a king that will will go ahead of us in battle, who will fight for us. We want that kind of king. And so God said, okay, because they had rejected him. And so he gave them the kind of king they wanted, and Saul was the first of those kings. And what they found out was what they wanted and what they asked for wasn't necessarily as great as they thought it would be. And so we can read through the Old Testament, especially through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, a a history of the many men that ruled over Israel. And some of them, like Saul, were not very good rulers. 
Lots of them were not good rulers. Many of them even completely disregarded what God had to say. And they were corrupt and they were evil. And so the way the leader goes, so the people go. And so when Israel had kings that disregarded and disobeyed and and rejected God, then so the people drifted away. But then sometimes there would be good kings. David was a king that scripture says was a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He wanted to follow God. And during those times, the people prospered because they had a king who, who followed God. But they called for their king. They wanted an earthly king because God was not meeting their expectations. God, they had decided, was not the kind of king that they wanted. And so they rejected him as their king. And so during their history... As king after king is ruling over the people, all throughout this time, the prophets are speaking. And they're prophesying about another king that was coming. An ultimate king, the greatest king, the final king over Israel. And he would be the Messiah. And he would be the one that would come and deliver them from all, from all the other rulers and all the other nations. And he would come and be their king forever and ever and ever. And when we get to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about the coming Messiah. And there's lots of messianic prophecies in in the book of Isaiah. But I want us to look in in chapter 53 at just three verses for the sake of time this morning. Because there's one one element to Jesus as Messiah that I want us to really think about this morning. Um, All throughout the, the book of Isaiah, there are four passages kind of in the middle that are called the servant songs. And these are, these are four distinct songs or narratives that Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah, who he would be, what kind of ruler he would be, what kind of Messiah he would be. And Isaiah 53 is one portion of the last of those four songs in Isaiah that talk about the suffering servant, the servant that's to come. And so I want you to look in Isaiah 53 with me. Beginning in verses 1 and 2 at the very beginning. Isaiah says, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. And so verse 1 says, Isaiah says, who has believed what we have heard? Almost that he expects there to be resistance. He expects there to be people who don't believe the testimony. And then he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord represented power and authority and deliverance. And he says, to whom has that arm been revealed? And then he begins in verse 2 to describe the nature of this messianic king that would come. And we know that this is talking about Jesus. So in verse 2, there's three specific characteristics that Isaiah talks about in describing the way and the type of Messiah that Jesus would be. Um, Look there in verse 2. It says that he grew up before him like a young plant, or your Bible may say a tender shoot. He, meaning this messianic king, would grow up before God 
like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. The Jews would not have expected a king that would grow up as a tender shoot or a young, fragile plant. They would have expected a Messiah that came like a strong, deep-rooted, mighty oak. That, that's the picture of Messiah that they wanted. But Isaiah says, no, he, he grows up before God in humility. This is a picture of the humility of Jesus. The meekness, the gentleness of Jesus as Messiah. He was born to meager means. He was born in, in the peasant class, not as a king, not as a ruler in, in nobility. Then he also says, he grew like a root out of dry ground. Now, this is, a, this is a statement that I think sometimes we just read over. But you realize how opposite that is. Like, when have you ever seen anything grow out of dry ground? Nothing, dro- nothing grows out of dry ground. It needs water. It needs fertile soil. But, but Isaiah said this Messiah would, would grow like a root out of dry ground. You say, well, what is that dry ground? It was the, it was the time, it was the place, it was the, the spiritual climate of the region and the place and the time and the people to which Jesus would come. Jesus was born in a time that was spiritually dry and barren in its understanding of God. Even even the religious leaders, even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who were supposed to be leading the people closer to God were actually pushing them farther away with their rules and their laws and their man-made regulations that they were establishing for their own good. They were establishing these laws and they were using God's law as a pedestal to put themselves on, to glorify themselves over the rest of the people, to give them power. So there was a spiritual barrenness. They, he also came to the Jews in a time when Rome ruled over them. So not only did the religious leaders, were they, in essence, keeping people away from God, which Jesus would accuse them of. Also, the Romans were ruling over them. They were oppressing them. And the Romans were pagans. Even the place that Jesus was was born. Even the place where he grew up, he was born in Bethlehem, which was a small, insignificant city. And he grew up in Nazareth. And in John chapter 1, when you read about Philip, who would become one of Jesus' disciples, when he goes to Nathaniel, after he has his initial encounter with Jesus and he sees him, he goes to Nathaniel and he says, look, I found the Messiah. I think I found him. And he's come out of Nazareth. And in chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel replies to that, Nazareth? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was the reputation of the city of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. The spiritual climate was dry. The, the place was not fertile. Jesus grew in the, in the power of God in a place where there was no fertile soil for his coming. It was completely dry. Yet there he came. And then also in verse 2, it says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty 
that we should desire him. No appearance that we should desire him. Sometimes we might read that and think, well, that must mean Jesus was ugly. And I don't necessarily think Jesus was ugly. But what the prophet's saying there is that there was nothing in his physical appearance that made him stand out any different than anyone else. He didn't glow. (laughs) He didn't radiate the glory of God because in his full humanity, the glory of who he was was veiled. It was covered up. So that people who looked at him just strictly through human eyes in a human natural way couldn't and wouldn't see who he was. He He didn't have the benefits of attractiveness we live in a culture that completely rewards you if you're attractive if there's an outward attractiveness to you people are drawn to you there's a reward for that in the world and what Isaiah is saying is that there was nothing attractive about Jesus appearance that gave him any kind of advantage he was as plain and ordinary and unnoticeable as anybody else in his humanity there was nothing attractive about him And I think this is a really important principle to think about at Christmas because I think often we try to make Jesus attractive to the world, maybe in a way that we don't need to. I think sometimes when we, in our effort to try to share the gospel with people and tell people about Jesus, we try really hard to make Jesus more relevant than maybe he's supposed to be. And maybe to make him look a way that he's not supposed to look. Like we have to dress Jesus up to make him look attractive to the world so that the world will be drawn to him. But Isaiah said there was nothing about Jesus that would make the world be drawn to him just by looking at him. Um, There's a a quote that I read from Alan Redpath in a commentary that I want to share with you. He said... These days it appears that we must dress up the gospel to make it attractive. We have to use the methods of technique which must be smart, well presented, and streamlined. There must be something about the presentation of the gospel that will appeal to people. To what is called the modern mind. I wonder if we stop to think that in our efforts to make the gospel message attractive... We are drawing a curtain across the face of Jesus in his humility. The only one who can make Jesus attractive is the Holy Spirit. I think maybe we're guilty of that sometimes without knowing it. Without realizing it, without being intentional. The only way that Jesus becomes attractive to me or to you, or to anyone else, is not because of anything that we see in who he is on the outside from a human perspective. It's when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can open our eyes so that we can see, and that, that veil that, that, that's kind of over his glory and his identity of who he is, when the Holy Spirit, in that moment of conviction, in that moment that he comes, he lifts that away from your eyes, and you can see Jesus For who he is while the rest of the world is looking at him going, that's nothing special. You, because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, you can see him and go, that's the glory of God. 
He's the son of God. He's the one who's come. We don't have to make Jesus attractive, folks. Jesus can't be, I can't make Jesus any more attractive than he already is. I can't make him any more beautiful than he already is. But I have to trust the Holy Spirit to use my presentation of him and your presentation of him that's true to what God's word says. And the Holy Spirit to take that and open people's eyes so that they can see his beauty. Just like Charlie Brown could look at this tree and say, oh, this is perfect. While all the rest of them looked at it and said, why did you pick this one? So write this down. God lives and moves outside of our expectations. Here's the big principle. God lives and moves outside of our expectations. And most of us would say amen to that statement because the first thing we're going to think of are all the times that we've seen God go above and beyond what we expected, right? We would read that and go, amen, God does move outside of my um, expectations because so many times I've seen him do bigger and better things in my life than I even expected. But what about the times that he didn't meet your expectations? Are you still able to see him for who he is? Are you still able to glorify him even when what you expect of him doesn't happen? When's the last time God disappointed you? This may be... Think about that. What's the last time that you hoped for something in God or you asked God for something, expecting it to happen, and for whatever reason it didn't? Or God didn't come through and show himself in a way that you thought he should show himself and it was disappointing to you. Can I lovingly say to you and to me that if God ever doesn't meet my expectations The problem is not with God. If God ever doesn't meet my expectations of what I think he should be or what I want him to be, the problem is with me and my expectations. My heart's not right. My expectations are are not so much for his glory, but they're for what I want and what I want to see. And if I can get past those and see him for who he really is, then it doesn't matter whether he does big things or little things. He does majestic things or humble things. He's still beautiful. And he's still glorious. So often when God doesn't meet our expectations, we respond the same way that people in Samuel's day responded to God. We respond the same way the people in Palestine responded to Jesus when he came. When God doesn't measure up to be what we think he should be, we reject him. We push him away. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah says it. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. So here's the second principle. We reject what doesn't meet our expectations. God lives outside of our expectations, right? Whether it be exceedingly abundantly more than what we expect 
Or if our expectations are off base and he doesn't meet the things that we expect of him. He lives outside of all earthly expectation. But yet we as people, oftentimes when anything doesn't meet our expectation, we reject it. We push it away. That thing that you wanted so bad because everybody else had it once you got it and you figured out it wasn't that great you either sold it gave it away or threw it in the trash eventually because it didn't meet your expectations it didn't it didn't bring what you thought it was going to bring and you see it starts that's in verse 3. In verse 2, it started out with there was nothing about Jesus that made him desirable. We didn't desire him. People didn't desire him. That was the first step. But then by the time Isaiah gets to verse 3, it goes beyond not just our inability to desire Jesus, but then it goes to the fact that we outright despised and rejected him. That's a whole nother level. John, in his prologue, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he says it in verses 10 and 11. Having spent time with Jesus intimately, having a relationship with Jesus on earth, going through his ministry, as John wrote this Gospel, he wrote in verses 10 and 11, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is what John says. His testimony of seeing Jesus' life among the people. His own people, the ones, the Jews, who were the ones that he came for. Initially, the ones he came to reveal the kingdom to. They rejected him. The religious leaders rejected him because he opposed them. He had a different picture of the kingdom than, than what was their expectation. What they thought the kingdom was going to be. He came and turned it upside down on them. And because of that, he didn't meet expectations, so they rejected him. And they didn't just reject him, but they despised him to the point that they tried to murder him. Multiple times they tried to kill him in the Gospels until finally he, they're able to crucify him. And it wasn't just the Jews and the religious leaders that despised him. The, the Romans despised him. They were in charge and they disrespected and rejected Jesus because they saw him as just another Jewish criminal. Somebody who was trouble for them. And when we read the story of the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus, we can see that, that the Romans rejected him. They made a mockery of him. They rejected him in a different way than the Jews did. The Jews were so angry with him they wanted to kill him. To the Romans, they rejected him as a joke. They put a crown of made out of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe on him. They slapped him. They pulled out his beard. They spit on him. They, they would bow down before him in mockery. Oh, king of the Jews. And they just made fun of him. Posted a sign over his cross. This is the king of the Jews. As an example to everyone else. Saying, this, this man claimed to be king and look what we've done to him. He's a joke. It was an exhibition of their power and their authority. But probably the greatest rejection, and I think maybe the rejection that would have hurt the heart of Jesus most in all of that, was not 
the kings and not, not Herod, not Pilate, not, not um, the religious leaders, not the Romans. But when Pilate stood before the people and he brought a beaten, battered Jesus out before them. And he said, who would you have me release? As it was the tradition, he would release one prisoner to the Jews every year during Passover. And he said, who do you want me to release? you want me to give you Jesus? And they said, no. We don't want him. He said, give us Barabbas, a, a revolutionary, a, a murderer, a criminal. They said, give us that guy. We want that guy more than we want him. Crucify him. We don't want him. So people all around us reject Jesus. Even at Christmas. You say, how can anybody reject Jesus at Christmas? Jesus is what Christmas is all about. Yeah, he is. But people will reject him. Because he's not the kind of savior that they expect because they can't see past their own expectations for what he's supposed to be what he's supposed to do for them what he's supposed to provide and when we can't get past our own expectation to see the glory of who he is we'll reject him so Charlie Brown goes to the Christmas tree farm and he picks this tree a whole farm full of Shiny, bright, pink, huge aluminum trees. And Charlie Brown picks this one. And I always wondered, even as a kid, why did he pick this one? Well, we already know that Charlie Brown's looking for the true meaning of Christmas. And he hasn't quite figured it out yet. But there was something in Charlie Brown's mind that, that drew his heart and his eyes to this tree beyond any of the other big ones. The beautiful ones, the ones that everybody else would have picked. He picked this one. I think I will always see Jesus in this tree. The one that nobody wanted. The most humble, meek one of, of them all. The one that had nothing attractive about it. Nothing to make us want to choose it. But it was the right one. And really, to be honest with you, in that whole lot full of trees, this was the only real tree. All the rest of them were fake. They were artificial. And I think that's why Charlie Brown's drawn to it. It was the only real one. I also, in light of this understanding, can see Charlie Brown like the prophet Isaiah. Charlie Brown is the prophet who, who finds and says, this is what I found. This is the one that's for us. And he brings it back to the people. And when he said the Messiah that's coming, I've, I've found him and this is who he is and this is what he's like. And this is the kind of Messiah he'll be. But then all the rest of the Peanuts gang are like the Jews. We don't want our Messiah to be like this. How could... How could you choose this one? How, what are you telling us, Isaiah, that this is the Messiah that we're waiting for? This is not the one we want. How could he think that such a small, tender, meek, unattractive tree could be their tree? The Jews didn't want to believe that such a meek, 
humble, tender, unattractive Messiah could be their Messiah. You say, why was it this way? Here's my last point. Christmas, Charlie Brown, is all about Jesus being rejected so that you and I could be accepted. Folks, Jesus had to be rejected. He had to be the one that nobody wanted. He had to be the one to be pushed away. You know why? Because if they had not rejected him, he would have never gone to the cross. And if Jesus had never gone to the cross, his blood would have never been shed. And if his blood had never been shed, there would be nothing to atone for my sin. And nothing to atone for your sin. Perfectly. The blood of a righteous man, yet son of God, son of man, fully divine, yet fully human. His blood was the only blood that could save us. And had he not been rejected... Many times the Jews tried to, before they rejected him, they tried to take him and put him on the throne. You remember that? Throughout all the Gospels, they would try to seize him and take him and make him their king. And, and, he, and he had to get away from them. He had to run away because he knew that wasn't the plan. It wasn't the time. Jesus was going to end up on the throne in Jerusalem, but it wasn't then. But one day he will. One day scripture says that he will come when the new heaven and the new earth and he will come down and there will be a new Jerusalem and Jesus will sit on the throne in Jerusalem as the king. And no one will ever move him. He will be that Messiah one day. But he was rejected by the Jews, you know why? So that you and I could be brought into the kingdom. So that we wouldn't be left out. Had they made him king and not rejected him, you and I would have no place in the kingdom. But because they rejected him, the gospel was made available to us. And it became good news for all the people as the angel said it would be. So on Christmas Eve, we're going to wrap up this series. Next week our joyful hearts are going to sing and then on the 24th that morning we're going to wrap up this series and so but for this morning I want to ask you have you rejected the real Jesus because you're looking for a different one have you never put your faith and trust in Jesus because Jesus just you just can't wrap your mind around Jesus as he is because you expect him or want him to be something different and let me just tell you my prayer for you if that, if that it has been your perspective, I just can't give my life to Jesus because he just doesn't seem like the kind of Messiah that I need or the kind of Messiah that I want. He is the only one there is. There is no other. All the rest are fake. All the rest are artificial. He's the only one. And my prayer for you is that maybe even today, if that is your heart, that the Holy Spirit, because he's the only one that can do it. I can't do it. That he would take away that veil. Those scales that are on your eyes that make you look at Jesus and see something that's, that's not anything special. It's not anything that you would want. And that, that, you can, that the Holy Spirit would remove those and let you see just how glorious and what a perfect Savior he is. He's lacking nothing. 
And he meets every need that you have. And your greatest is to be reconciled to God. And it's only through Jesus that that happens.